Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. Good morning, everybody. All right, now it's class time, and here's the question for the class. When we look in John 15, where are Jesus and the disciples in John 15? Where are they? Literally, where are they? In the upper room, exactly. Very important to understand. The book of John is different than any of the other uh, Gospels in that John covers the entire birth, life, ministry of Jesus in the first half of his, of his letter, his book. And the last half is entirely devoted to the last, virtually the last few hours John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those five chapters deal with just a three to four hour period of time in the upper room, the upstairs floor in John Mark's mom and dad's house that they rented out for banquets, and two blocks down the road was the garden where they prayed. Those three or four hours all take place in those two places. But those five chapters were so important to the Holy Spirit that John wrote so much just about that conversation. And in that conversation, Jesus knew that this was going to be the last opportunity he was going to have before his death and resurrection to give his men the foundation that would hold them when it certainly appeared or would appear to them that all their hope was stripped from him, uh, from them through his arrest, beating and death. So what he said in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, very, very important. What I want to direct your attention to is John 15. And as we look to that, I want to say something about the importance of words. The Bible talks much about our words. I, I, I do think perhaps there is a, a real imbalance in some areas of the body of Christ, especially in the Western charismatic church about words. I, I don't believe that by simply repeating words over and over again, you can create things. God does, but we don't. I do think that our words can hurt us. I think they can harm us. But the important thing overall, I think, about words is that God has decided that it is through the simple speaking about the gospel of the new covenant that the power of the new covenant is actually transmitted. Paul said it is through the preaching of the good news that is the power of God unto salvation. Now, when we hear the word preaching, we think of this. Somebody standing up typically behind the pulpit. That's not what Paul was talking about at all. Pulpits didn't exist in their days. They didn't have church buildings. They didn't do it like we're doing it now. The word preaching in the New Testament means to speak about with passion. To speak about something with passion. That's what the word preaching means. It doesn't mean stand up. For, now, hopefully the person who's standing up here is going to speak with passion about whatever they're speaking. But that's not preaching. Preaching is any time you talk to somebody and you speak about the gospel, the power of grace, the goodness of the new covenant and the goodness of God with passion. That's preaching. And what God has decided is that he would transmit the power of the life changing new covenant through the simple act of one person enthusiastically, passionately speaking about it with another. So our words are important. Our words are important. 
on these next four Wednesday nights as we meet over in the chapel to go through the foundation book. We're going to be talking about why we've chosen those specific words to describe the truths that we're communicating, why we've chosen those particular scriptures, and what kind of questions you may get as a result of that. But as a speaker and as a writer, I am constantly working on my words. And that's difficult for me. I'm a high school dropout. I have no formal education. So over the years, I've had to learn. And I still, uh, my, fortunately, my daughter is a, a, an English teacher, English professor. And uh, so she helps. And uh, uh, Patty Guy, I'll go, uh, probably mutilated your name, but you've been helping me and Sarah Mills and and a few others have been helping by sending us emails about the foundations book, about asking questions, helping us find typos and asking about words. Words are important because God has chosen that as human beings, we communicate with words. We communicate truths with words. Beyond that, Jesus is the living word. God spoke. And the worlds came into existence. God came to us in flesh as Jesus Christ. He came to us as the living word. John said the word became flesh and he came. He dwelt among us. And now he sent us out. The living word has sent us out to speak words to other people. You know that the literacy rate, the ability to read in the first century Roman Empire was three percent. Only three percent of the people living in the first century Roman Empire could read. Most of those were in the upper classes, the wealthy people. Most of those were not the ones who responded to the gospel. So their ability to read was utterly zero in most cases. So when these letters of the New Testament came to them, those who could read had to read to the others. And then they would talk about it. But as they would talk about it, truth would begin to come alive inside of them. And of course, we know it is the truth that sets us free. So what I want to deal with together today is this issue, and that is the danger of role reversal, role, R-O-L-E, role reversal in the new covenant. I want to suggest to you that most of the struggles that we have in trying to learn how to walk in tandem with Jesus, how to walk out this journey in our life, Most of the frustration that we have in one way or another comes when we get the roles between us and God or us and the Holy Spirit reversed, where we end up thinking we're supposed to do or produce something that the Bible teaches only God by his spirit can produce. Or we advocate our own responsibilities and expect God to do what he's expecting us to do. When you go to a doctor, if you have to be prescribed medication, you cannot do for yourself what the medicine can do. However, you do have a responsibility. And what is it? You got to take it. If you don't take it, it's not going to do its job. But if you take it, you don't heal yourself. But you allow the medicine to come in and do what it does. So when we talk about this, the issue of role reversal is something that I know Linda and I, we have to remind each other all the time. We have to have our minds renewed daily, even though we talk about this virtually every day around the world. We still have to renew our minds. And I want us together today to have a little mind renewing as we take a look at this. Now, look at John 15. Remember now, this is just couple, three hours before Jesus is arrested, beaten, crucified, and the disciples are all going to scatter because their hope is going to be shattered. So Jesus is trying to give them an understanding of how this new covenant 
is going to work. There is a major change in all of human history that is coming in just several hours. Very critical to understand. So Jesus is trying to use words to communicate with them things that are divine, things that, that, that their minds can't hardly wrap around. So he uses metaphor. And when we look at the Bible, we must remember this is the God-breathed, inspired word of God. God chose to send it to us in the form of literature. This is literature. That doesn't demean it. It just says we have to understand what this is. Divinely inspired, the, in, inspired, the inerrant word of God. But it's come to us in the form, by God's choice, of literature. One of the aspects of literature is metaphor. Metaphor is taking, in this case, taking some natural thing that you and I would be able to understand and using it to explain a supernatural thing that our minds would not just naturally be able to understand. So Jesus does this in chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Look, that alone, if you don't, if you don't think of anything else, that one statement right there is an amazing confidence builder. Jesus has already told them, you are all going to fall away before this night is over. And you, Peter, by the way, you're going to curse and swear three times. You don't even know me, so you might as well shut up now because you're going to be talking way too much here in just a little bit. But after he told him that, he then said, however, you are already clean through the word. Wow, what kind of confidence did Jesus have in him, in those guys, his word in those guys? Cheer up. God is far more confident in the outcome of your life than you are because he's good at what he does. You stick with him, let him do what he's supposed to do, and you'll get the benefit of it. So Jesus makes this statement to prepare their hearts. And then he goes back to this metaphor of the branches, the vine, fruit, vine, branch, fruit. Abide in me, verse four, and I in you as as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, unless it draws life from the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Get your role straight. Get my role straight, get your role straight. You see that that's what Jesus is doing. He is divine, defi divining. Huh. He is defining, <laughs> he is defining the roles. And the greatest frustration of my life invariably has come and does come when I switch these roles. And so we must be renewed and have our minds washed, a good brainwashing in this thing. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who just abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus uses this. Give me that first slide if you would. Jesus uses this metaphor of the, of the branch and the vine. And uh, invariably what happens to us is that the enemy of our soul uh, fights in us, uh, oftentimes through our own human logic, and we don't realize that it's the enemy speaking because we think it's just human logic. But when we get the roles straight, we realize that what Jesus was talking about, his emphasis was not fruit. 
But that's our problem. When we read a passage like that, we immediately tend to go to the fruit. We say, okay, I understand now. This is all about producing fruit. No, it's not. This is the utterly natural result. If you do the other thing he's talking about, you don't have to worry about this. If you do the other thing, now what's the other thing he's talking about? Abide in me. Abide in me. Like a branch connected to the vine. What does the branch do? The branch draws the life. The branch receives the life. Have you ever gone and, and, and bought some cut flowers for someone to give them as a gift? Have you ever noticed that when you cut, say, a rose and leave it out of the water for a few hours, it begins to wilt? Then when you put it in a vase of water, even though it's already been cut off from the vine and ultimately it's already dead and it will show up as dead in not too many days. But an amazing thing happens by God's plan and design. When you put that cut flower in a vase of water, the first thing it does is start sucking the water up into itself. You see, by God's creation, that's just the natural thing. And the natural thing for us needs to be keep drawing life from it. Don't worry about the fruit. If you begin to obsess about the fruit, you will start to reverse the roles. You will begin to believe again that somehow God has stepped back from you and he's waiting for you to produce fruit. And that's not the point of this metaphor at all. The point of the metaphor is keep drawing from me, keep drawing from me, keep drawing from me. And fruit will be the natural result. If fruit is not showing up, don't worry about the fruit. Check the connection. And you know what? Our whole life is filled with this. Go And the Bible is filled with this. Go to the next slide if you would. Throughout the Bible, these metaphors are given to us to get the roles right. This is Jeremiah 18, where God says to Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house and watch what goes on. And as you watch, my words will come to you. And his word was... I am the potter and you are the clay. If you'll get your role straight and my role straight, this is all going to work out good for you. And that is a natural metaphor that God has chosen to give us to understand. Those hands there are not mine. They're not yours. Whose are they? They're God's. The God who's spoken the world's left into existence is handling your life. He's handling my life. And the job of the clay is not to make itself into something good. The job of the clay is to stay on the cotton pick and wheel. And let the potter whoop up on you in love, of course. Let the potter poke you, jab you, smooth you, water you. That's it. But the moment the enemy convinces us that somehow God is waiting for us, to make ourselves better, we find ourselves stuck in a powerless position because the power comes from him. The results show up in our lives as we do that. And then, you know what? Our whole life is filled with these kind of metaphors. This is a piece of a of a garden hose. And you know what? If you were going to go in the summer and uh, you were going to water your garden or flowers around your house, and you come up here and you hold that hose and no water comes out, you're not going to look at that hose and say, what is the matter with you, man? Uh, you, you need to work better. The first thing you do is to check the connection because you realize 
This does not produce anything by itself. All this does is to provide a channel. See, it's a channel. It's just, that's all it does. It doesn't do anything. But that's a really important job. The faucet on the wall can't do its job unless it works with this. But this not connected to that, no good. You wouldn't get mad at the hose. You just check the connection. And so it is in our lives. And, you know, I mean, you can just go, you can go on and on and on and on. If I go over and turn on the, 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 the lamp that's on the other side of the room and there's no socket over there, so I had to hook it up to an extension cord. If that lamp doesn't go on, I'm not going to yell at the extension cord. I'm going to look and see if it's what? Plugged in. I wouldn't get mad at this because I know it cannot produce any power. I don't expect it to. That's not its role. Its role is to stay firmly connected so that the power that comes from somewhere else can pass in and through, in and through, in and through. If you've ever read my books, you know in and through. I mean, this is what the new covenant is all about. Jesus comes to live in you, and he, as he works in you, he wants to then work through you. And that's getting the roles. And when I say roles, it's R-O-L-E. Now, not R-O-L-L. That's what we're having for lunch. But to get the, to get the roles straight, to get them carefully. Go to, go to the slide, John 7, if you would, please. I want to show you how we, we can make, well, not we can, we do. We, we, we make, we make serious mistakes sometimes. When we, when we use illustrations or, or, or analogies from a human perspective. And, and I know we preachers and teachers, I'm, I know our motives are good. I know that. But I look back over my 40 plus years of ministry now and I realize that so many times I, I, I read Bible scriptures and then I drew analogies. And then I presented to people as truth. Only now to look back and realize that, that there are times when I've really ended up twisting the truth of the new covenant, especially the new covenant, by using analogies that were just humanistic. They were just inappropriate, oftentimes from the Old Testament. In fact, Dave uh, Rodiger and I, our wonderful sound man, sound man back there, Dave, we love you, brother. We need you. Thank you so much. We were having a wonderful discussion the other day, and he was talking about hearing somebody talk about how they were in the midst of a struggle, and, and uh, they saw themselves like David fighting Goliath. And Dave made an excellent point. He said, you know what? That story in the Old Testament of David and Goliath, we ain't David. We are the cowardly Israelites hiding over behind the hill. And Jesus is David winning the victory that we get the benefit of, though we didn't fight. Right? But see, the Old Testament is filled with shadows that are fulfilled in Christ. And so we have to see those clearly. And I want to show you a way that this works as an example, because I've done this. Man, have I done this. And I want to try to learn to not do it anymore. I want to do better at communicating these things as we all do. But let me give you a very important example of how this works. Now, let's read this passage here. And by the way, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, by in John 7, we are already in the last just very handful of days of Jesus' natural life. 
We're already through his three years of ministry. We're just before the, the upper room and the crucifixion. That's why it says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Would you read those last five, six words with me, please? Let him come to me and drink. All right. Now, remember that he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this later uh, in, in, in retrospect so that we would understand what Jesus is referring to metaphorically. But this he spoke of the spirit. So the river, the water is what? The Holy Spirit. And what where it's flowing in and through is what? Us. So we're the channel. He's the river. All right. But it all begins by us doing what? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It all begins with us drinking. Then the river begins to flow in us and out of us, and we're channeled. Now, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, had, were, were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit had not come in the, in the sense of Pentecost to fill them. He had been with them, but not in them, Jesus said. And so that's why John adds that. Now. Dear friends of ours, we love them dearly. We're not super close, but uh, we do know them quite quite well, I think, and, and we love them a lot. And they uh, have a traveling ministry, and they're giving their all for Jesus, and I admire that, and I appreciate it very much. And a few days ago, uh, this was posted on Facebook. Go ahead and put that up there, if you would, please. Uh, this social media post, this very sincere believer, very, very sincere believer, and, and they sincerely put this up. If you put a drop of sewage in bottled water, would you still drink it? No. In the same light, one drop of compromise contaminates the entire vessel. Now, I, I watched, just out of interest, I watched the comments. You know how on Facebook you can, you can like it and you can comment. And comment after comment, yes, praise God, we have to hate sin, yes, we have to purify ourselves, that's right, you're right, you're right, you're right. You know what, if that's right, we are all going to hell. If that's biblical truth, you, you're wasting your time being here, that's for sure. That's not Bible. That is not Bible. But let me tell you, the reason we think that way is because we get the roles reversed in the new covenant and we end up putting on us or others a responsibility that we don't have the power to fulfill. We then become powerless and we don't know why, but it's because we're looking to ourselves to do something that only God can do. Therefore, we're not doing what only we can do in this deal. Now, let me show you another way that you can say this same untruth because I've said it in my preaching years back. Would you pour clean water into a dirty container and then drink it? Of course not. So God will not pour, and I missed the word pure. I meant to put the word pure there. God will not pour the pure water of his Holy Spirit into a dirty human vessel. Now, you know why that's wrong? Because it presupposes that the water we're talking about, you are going to drink it. Or God is going to drink it. God doesn't drink us. We drink him. 
And why, why, why would you ever pour clean water into a dirty dish? What? To clean it? What a novel idea. Therefore, any who thirst, come to me and drink. Dirty people that you are, unlike Christ as you are, unholy in all your behavior as you are, come and drink of the pure water of the holiest spirit of all. Oh, no, no, I may contaminate him. The Holy Ghost ain't worried about you making him dirty. He's worried that you're going to stay in the condition you are in and he wants to keep pouring into you, cleansing you, sanctifying you, changing you from the inside out by his power, not by ours. But you see, listen, we have to be discerning. We have to develop discernment. We have to be willing to ask honest questions. When we hear stuff like this, Without being mad at anybody, we have to be willing to say, wait a minute, before I get caught up in the guy's passionate delivery, I need to ask myself, is this true? Is this true? And we hear this kind of stuff. Man, just turn on Christian TV and, you know, it just seems like more often than not, guys, they get all worked up and they say things and afterwards you think, wait a minute, is that, you know, it's like, it's like God is holy, therefore he cannot look upon any unholiness, and you are still unholy. So when God looks at you, he does not see you. He only sees not true. Now, those of you who said, Jesus, you know that's not true. But see, it sounds wonderful. Yes, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He only sees Jesus. However, when we tell people that, you know what the devil begins to whisper in their ear? Yeah, the reason God doesn't want to see you is because he doesn't like you at all. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is alive and active and that God, everything that is created is laid bare before God and his eyes see everything that has been created. Then the next verse says, Therefore, we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. So come boldly unto the throne. God sees us with all of our struggles, with all the impurities that we are yet trying to grow out of by the power of his spirit. He knows all of that. He's not hiding from all of that. It doesn't scare him. It doesn't sully him. But he is the great cleanser, the great sanctifier. We got to keep those roles straight. Now, in the Old Testament... God's dealings with Israel, he frequently used his uh, uh, a series of names. And I know you've heard teaching on the names of God, I'm sure, before. But throughout the Old Testament, God used a series of different Hebrew names. They all started with Jehovah, and then they had an additional word that God would put. And each of these words describes God's role and Israel's role. Each of these words describes something that when you can't do this for yourself, God wants to be the one to do it for you. For example, Jehovah Jireh. This is what Abraham called God 
when he was up to sacrifice Isaac and a ram shows up and, and God provides the ram. And, 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 and Abraham said, you are Jehovah Jireh. You are God, my provider. And what Jehovah Jireh means is that when you cannot provide for yourself, God wants to provide for you. Later on, God speaks to the people of Israel and he calls himself Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord, our healer. And that name means I am the God who, when you cannot heal yourself, I want to do it for you. I want to heal you. And if you can heal yourself, heal yourself. But when you can't, God wants to do it for you. That describes his nature and his role. When I can't do it, he wants to be the one to do it for me. Jehovah Shammah is about peace. He is the God who gives peace. When we're full of worry and anxiety, Jehovah Shammah wants to come and give us a peace that we cannot produce for ourselves. Jehovah Nisi is another name in the Old Testament, which means the God of all victory. So when you cannot win the victory for yourself, God wants to come in, fight for you, win the victory for you as a free gift. That describes his role. Uh, Jehovah Shammah means the Lord who is with us. So when, when we feel alone or we feel orphaned, that's when God wants to come to us and be Jehovah Shammah or Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the God who gives righteousness. When we can't uh, uh, find some sense or feeling of righteousness, God wants to remind us that he's the God who makes us righteous by his work, not by ours. Now, those are names that God gave Israel to help them understand what their role was, what his role was. The same way as Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you will draw life from me, the natural result will be fruit. That is the natural result of that. Now, when you come to the book of Leviticus, a lot of those names are in Exodus, but when you come to the book of Leviticus, you know, Moses uh, wrote the first five books of the Bible, what's referred to as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the, one of those, the, th the third one, I guess, or... I don't know. It's one of them. Uh, or, or as Paul says, somewhere it is written. I love that. You know, four different times in Paul's letters, he says, and somewhere it is written. And then he says some great divine truth uh, without feeling bad. So somewhere there is the book called Leviticus. Now, the word Leviticus means the giving of the law. And when you listen, by the way, if any of you suffer from insom insomnia, like I frequently do, uh, you know, Ambien, uh, no, you know, uh, Nitol, whatever, but the book of Leviticus. Just begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. Because the Leviticus, Leviticus is the giving of the laws. And every verse is, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. In this situation, don't do that. Do this. Just on and on. And there's a law for everything. I mean, there's, you know, there's a law for, for, for what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath, how far you can walk and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, and they, I mean, there, there, there's, there, there's, a, there, there's a law in Leviticus for if you hire somebody to come and work on your roof and he falls off and hurts himself, there is a law on how you are to take care of his family while he is recovering. There's a law for everything. There is a law in Leviticus for how to go to the bathroom. There is. There is a law in Leviticus that says every Israelite in the camp shall wear hanging from their belt a small shovel. So when you do your business, cover it up. It's in the Holy Bible. Now, look, that makes a lot of sense. A couple of million people marching day after day through the desert. The further back in the crowd you are, the more you hope they're all keeping the law. But after you've read 15, 16 chapters in the book of Leviticus, 
man, you're starting to get weighed down. Think, oh, man, I can't, I can't even remember all this, let alone do it all. What I, I need a computer, but they haven't been invented yet, just to help remind me of what am I going to do? And God, understanding that right in the middle of the book of the law, right in the middle of the book of the law, God gives us an incredible name. Now, I want you to see it. Give me that slide, if you would, Leviticus. This is Leviticus 20. We're a little further than halfway in the book of all these laws. Now, listen to this. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy because... I am the Lord, your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them because I am. And in the Hebrew, it is Jehovah Mekadesh. But every English translation translates it. I am the Lord who makes you holy or I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You know, the beauty of the name Mekadesh is that it reminds us that holiness is something God by his spirit does to us. Oh, man, that was a good place to say, yeah, right there. That was that was a that was a good place to say, thank God or something like that. See, the beauty of this was even in the old covenant, God was communicating the eternal truth that God's role is to be the one who puts holiness in us. Let me put it this way. God's holiness is medicinal. What's holy about God will change what's unholy about me. If I will keep drinking from him. If I will keep drinking from him, his holiness will infect me and cure me. God is Jehovah Mekadesh. Even in the old covenant with the people who who turned from him again and again and again. Yet he says, I want you to know that I am Jehovah Mekadesh. I am the God who makes People holy. They say, well, that's really great. You know, it's one of those obscure Old Testament texts. But, you know, thanks. I'm glad to know that. That's really cool. But, folks, let me tell you something. This right here is what the New Testament believers based their hope on. Let me show it to you. First Peter chapter one. Give us that, if you would, please. In first Peter chapter one. Look at these words. Man, every time I think about this, I get so excited. I know you all are not, but man, I'm telling you what, I just, oh man, oh, oh, I live for this right here, this is awesome. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. How? For it is written, where is it written? Every scholar says Peter is quoting directly from Leviticus 20, verse 7, Jehovah Mekadesh. Because, be holy because God is holy. The commandment, or be holy is not a commandment, it's a promise. It's a promise. The God who is Jehovah Mekadesh, I am the God who makes people holy. If you'll stick with me, you're going to turn out holy. I'm talking about holy in our action and behavior. We are made eternally holy by the blood of the Lamb. I want you to understand that. But we're also commanded to grow in our holy behavior. We are commanded by God and we are rewarded by Him eternally as we learn to cooperate more with Jehovah Mekadesh, the Holy Spirit. And as we learn to cooperate with Him more, our life becomes more holy in our behavior. 
And Paul says that we will be eternally rewarded in the coming kingdom of God for how we cooperate with him. This is a promise. This is not a threat. This is not a demand. It's not a commandment. It is, in fact, a promise that will work in us and fill that commandment for our lives. This is this is the promise that you and I have. The enemy of it is role reversal. The enemy of it is the enemy convincing you that somehow it's your job to make yourself into something that you cannot. It is that frustration, it is that embarrassment, it is that shame that causes believers all over the world to press in and then pull back. Press in, then pull back. Because they have so reversed the roles that they then convince themselves that God is obviously angry with them because they're not as holy as they should be. So they try harder. They ultimately fail. We have to fail so that we can let God do it. The very giving of the law from the very beginning, the overarching reason was to run each of us out of our ability so we would have to say, God, I can't do this. And God could say, good, I'm glad you figured it out. Now I will do it in you if you will drink from me. And any other message is a lie. It is a destructive, shame-creating lie. And I confess that for many years I incorporated that kind of thinking in my preaching and teaching. I lived by that kind of thinking. I'm grateful that I'm beginning, beginning. I figure it's going to take me all of eternity to figure it all out, but... But God is an eternal God, and I'll probably spend all of eternity like you getting to know him. But here's our hope now. He is Jehovah Mekadesh. He is the God who makes people holy from the inside out. He comes to live in us when we put our faith in him. He begins to work inside of us by the spirit. He gives us his word as a mirror so we can look and see how we want to cooperate and how we need to do all things motivated by love. Oh, God, I'm not doing that. So I'm grateful that you paid the price for where I fall short of that. But I don't want to stay like I am. So Holy Spirit, Jehovah Mekadesh, I just present myself to you once again for renewing of my mind that I might be able to let you live through me more fully, more graciously, more lovingly, and to you be all the honor and all the glory. Listen, this is not only our hope setting here today, but this is the hope of people who are out there and somehow intuitively they know they're lost. And they're not here or anywhere else today because they figure God is not interested in them or God is mad at them. And we have a wonderful message of hope. God wants to draw you to him just like you are. Oh, he won't leave you that way. But he wants to draw you to him just like you are. And then as you learn just little baby steps of beginning to trust him, he will begin changing you from the inside out because he is eternally Jehovah Mekadesh, the God who makes people holy. Would you stand up with me, please? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you have left for us the written words that keep reminding us that we're the branches. Our job is to draw life from you, the vine, that you have given us your written word. But Lord, we human beings have a terrible tendency of 
making this written word so very complicated. We ask you, Holy Spirit, if those first century people, most of them couldn't even read, and yet they were able to understand who you were, who you are, what the new covenant is, how you're working inside of them to change them. They could understand that even though they couldn't read. Oh, God, we need your help in simplifying the gospel. We want to be biblical, but we want to take the Bible as it's given in the simplicity of Christ in the new covenant. Lord Jesus, we repent right now of reversing the roles and somehow trying to do what only you can do. We want to give ourselves to people who take our medicine. We take it at the right time in the right quantities. We meditate on your medicine. We roll your word around in our hearts and minds, taking our medicine so that your living word will do in us what only Jehovah Mekadesh can do. You are making us holy and we are grateful. May we go into our world with a word of hope that that's what you want to do for anybody who will draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, have an awesome week this week. Be free from fear, shame, condemnation. And just as importantly, reach out to somebody this week and encourage them that God will do in them what they cannot possibly do for themselves. That's who He is. He likes to do that. And you have the message. Talk about it. Just, just talk about it. Have a great week. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.